0: If you're listening to Nomads and Empires, you're clearly already interested in the history of the Eurasian steppes, the great sea of grass stretching from China to Ukraine, and in the peoples that it has produced, peoples who have shaken the world in both East and West. And if you're interested in learning more about one of these peoples in particular, the Turks, I invite you to join me at the Turkish History Podcast. Where I cover the history of the Turks not just on the steppes, but throughout their history. I trace the history of the Turks from their mythical homeland in the valley of Ergenekon, through the first and second Göktürk Khanats, the Seljuks, and eventually the Ottomans and the Turkish Republic. We are currently covering the Great Seljuks, the story of how a band of Ohuz refugees managed to conquer virtually the whole of the Muslim world. I aim to cover the fascinating history of the Turkish people from their perspective, with them as the main characters. So if you're interested in learning more about the history of the Turks, please join me at the Turkish History Podcast. Now back to nomads and empires.
1: They were a people of the mountains, Living in the high elevation, they herded animals and planted what crops they could. The winters were brutal. Snow packed in the valleys while famine reared its head. Some enterprising individuals attempted to aid the village, trading in lands far to the south in places that were warm and fertile. And yet, despite all of these challenges, one could make a living here. One could survive. For years, Azo and his family maintained a somber but stalwart watch over the northern horizons. Generations ago, a great marauding people had entered Azo's valley. They were like a torrent of horses, a sea of mobile cavalry that devastated the land. According to legends, the village had been completely burnt, the animals stolen, and the people sundered. Slowly, they returned. In due time, they recovered, and soon after, the village established fortifications. A watchtower loomed over a small hill overlooking a mountain pass that trailed northward. A century or so had passed since those dark days, but terrifying words had reached Azo. A messenger from a nearby village had arrived a day ago. The man was haggard, and his eyes glazed over in agony and terror. His words were rushed and unclear at first, but slowly people began to understand. Over a small campfire in the middle of the village, the messenger warned the people of this mountain community of their impending doom. A great clan of horse riders was marching south. Whoever these invaders were, they were led by a charismatic and powerful chieftain. This leader boasted hundreds of warriors, all of whom were geared in great medals. Once again, the steppe nomads had arrived into the Caucasus. Azo, like the rest of the village, moved quickly after. He loaded up supplies onto an old ox. He rallied forth a number of the village men into a small militia. He hugged his son, a boy of around five years of age, and then Azo turned to his wife. He embraced her and whispered to her, urging her to take their son south. Across the village, the sounds of fear, anger, and regret poured through and into the mountain valley. Later that evening, many of the villagers retreated. A caravan of oxen and scraggly horses moved sluggishly. They would cross through the Armenian highlands and hopefully find refuge elsewhere, perhaps even among the great kingdoms of the south. That, at least, was Azo's hope. A few days passed, and Azo and his men had armed themselves as best as they could. They stood in formation, walled inside their village and the scant fortifications they had established. A scout ran to Azo, breathing hard and fast— A Scythian warband had been spotted. They were only a few hours' march away now. Azo turned to his men and nodded. He silently prayed to his gods. The Scythians had arrived. And welcome back to the Nomads and Empires podcast, episode 20. Last time, we explored the entirety of Scythian migration movements as different bands moved westward from the Cyan-Altai region. In that episode, we started by exploring several origin myths, tracing the Scythian lineage to figures like Targitos and Heracles. From there, we traced the Scythian origin to the Minasink Basin, and then analyzed the different migratory groups in Central Asia, the Southern Ural region, the Pontic Steppe, and beyond. By the 8th century BCE, Scythian groups stretched across the steppe. On today's episode, we're going to focus on one particular Scythian band. Or rather, it may be better to consider this a migratory movement. Whatever the case, these Scythians would play an instrumental role in ancient history, gaining an almost international notoriety, Like their Cimmerian predecessors, these Scythians would become major actors in the world of the ancient Near East, converging with the histories of Assyria, Babylon, and Israel. Today, we'll examine the Scythian groups that crossed the Caucasus, the very peoples who will later initiate a supposedly 28-year reign of political dominance over the lands of the settled But before we dive fully into this movement, let's first start by addressing some context. As we discussed in the last episode, Scythian bands had already made their way into the Pontic and North Caucasus region by the middle of the 7th century BCE. Prior to this movement, the North Caucasus were inhabited by a diverse array of cultural groups. These included the Koban culture, which thrived in the areas around the Stavropol Plateau of southern Russia, as well as the Colchis culture of western Georgia. The Koban culture was defined by their bronze metalworking, and many uncovered tombs were found with jewelry and weapons. We are evidently dealing with a fairly sophisticated culture with a tradition of metalworking. The peoples here were sedentary, building villages that utilized natural features, like cliffs and ravines, as defensive positions. Villages could typically be found in small groupings. These individuals participated in a number of agro-economic activities, including fishing, cattle raising, and farming. Commonly domesticated animals included pigs, goats, and sheep. It should be stated that despite this rather idyllic agrarian imagery, the North Caucasus' people were quite sophisticated. Archaeologists have uncovered large, symmetrical superstructures that would have required significant amounts of labor and architectural planning. As we also briefly touched on, the Koban culture is especially marked by their metalworking. Bronze was a particularly important metal that was used in all sorts of crafts. Bronze axes and daggers were especially common. Metal crafts were also included in jewelry and pottery vessels. It is even hypothesized that bronze played a role as a form of proto currency in the North Caucasus due to this significance. These defining characteristics of the Koban culture would begin to change around the 7th century BCE with the migration of the Scythians to that end, let's shift our perspective back to the Scythians. It is probable that the Scythians entered the North Caucasus after pushing into the Volga and Pontic steppes. The North Caucasus is quite an attractive area for steppe nomads. Much of the region is defined by lucrative grasslands that, as one moves southward, transitions into forest at the base of the Caucasus. The central area, known as the Stavropo Plateau, splits the region in half with western and eastern divisions. The western area is considered to be ecologically similar to the Pontic steppe, while the eastern area appears to be more akin to the central Asian steppe. Due to lower humidity levels, some parts of this eastern half are considered semi-desert rather than steppe or forest. In general, the presence of lakes and flowing rivers in these areas, such as the Cuban and Teric, would further increase the habitability of the North Caucasus. These conditions meant that the region was conducive for both nomadic pastoralism and settled agriculture, an important point for our discussion on the Scythians. In fact, prior to the Scythians, nomadic pastoralism had actually flourished between the 4th and 2nd millennia BCE. Prehistoric cultures like the mykop and Yamnaya raised sheep, goats, and cattle throughout the North Caucasus. Interestingly, nomadic pastoralism seems to have declined between the 1700s and 1000 BCE due to increased aridity. The timing here would allow for a settled culture, that being the Koban, to take root and thrive. An increased resurgence of dairy production hints that pastoralism would return sometime in the first millennia BCE. It should be noted that the resurgence of animal husbandry and dairy production may not solely come from nomadic steppe peoples. The Coben culture, as we previously noted, had also based their economy on animals like goats and sheep. What is interesting here is that unlike previous eras of animal pastoralism, we now began to see large amounts of horse milking in the North Caucasus. Such developments would track with an increased presence of steppe nomads with a horse-based economic structure in the region. That is to say, we might be able to attribute this agro-economic development to the Cimmerians and the Scythians. Like much of early Scythian history, we aren't really given specific reasons or direct events that explain Scythian migration into the North Caucasus. Herodotus asserts that the movement was in response to Cimmerian migrations. The Scythians in this case were chasing the remnant Cimmerians and would cross rivers and mountains to accomplish such. As we've discussed previously, this connection feels spurious at best. Instead, we can speculate that the reasons for such movements may be similar to what we saw in the Central and Pontic steppes. Population pressures in other areas may have pushed some communities outward as resources grew scarce. Ambitious individuals may have sought adventurism to secure their own pastures. The reasons could be many, fluid, and unclear. It is likely that initial contacts between the Scythian and Koban peoples may have consisted of small-scale raids and trade opportunities. Over time, these limited interactions may have escalated into wider conflicts and larger-scale population movements. Interestingly, the movement of Scythians into the North Caucasus appears to have correlated with a movement of Caucasians out of the mountains. Between around 900-750 BCE, Koban cultural influences could be detected in the Pontic Steppe and even as far west as Central Europe. The presence of Koban-style maceheads and daggers in these areas may imply that some individuals fled westward to escape the Scythians. That said, the presence of these Caucasian artifacts on the steppes of Ukraine may instead be signs of trade rather than of population movements. Again, we may be dealing with a myriad of reasons for these sorts of developments. Regardless, the Scythians would soon supplant the native Caucasians as members of a ruling military aristocracy. Burial analysis demonstrates that males were split between several axes. Those who were warriors, those who were mounted warriors, and those who weren't warriors at all. Some barrels contained more weapons than could possibly be used by a single person, hinting at further social stratification based on martial ability. Like other Scythian burials, we also find horse gear and horse sacrifices in many graves dated to the Caucasian Iron Age. As the Scythians entered into the North Caucasus around the 8th and 7th centuries BCE, we start to see cultural impact on the Koban themselves. The most striking change comes in the form of metallurgy. Bronze had been a defining characteristic of the Koban. The arrival of Scythian bands coincided with the Caucasian Iron Age. Iron weapons such as axes, daggers, lances, and knives have been found throughout the region, and there does appear to be a correlation between iron metalworking and the Scythian arrival. Beyond weapons, we can find curious ramifications in Coban burial clothing. Before the Scythian arrival, Coban men and women were buried in ways that highlighted their social standing and even regional affinity. A woman buried near the Caspian Sea would have been clothed differently from one near the Black Sea. The arrival of the Scythians, though increasing social stratification in some ways, appears to have correlated with a more egalitarian burial practice for the Koban peoples. For both men and women, burials of the Iron Age appear to have little regional differentiation. Instead, burials were marked by wealth, with some female tombs now showing a greater amount of jewelry, ornaments, and textiles. Indeed, the burials of the Scythian elite were defined by a high level of richness. Kurgans in Calermis and Krasnoyas in Amaya are especially noted for their treasures. In Calermis, for example, archaeologists have uncovered golden objects such as cups and sword sheets. Nearby in the Olski Kurgans, scholars have uncovered pottery that likely originated from the Greeks. Objects from across the known world could be found in the North Caucasus, including those from Assyria, Greece, Media, and the Achaemenid Persians. In several cases, we even find objects displaying the typical Scytho-Siberian art style, and yet also strongly influenced by Assyrian and Babylonian artistic motifs. Let's take a step back and examine the Scythian presence holistically. By the 7th century BCE, Scythian bands entered the North Caucasus and supplanted local leaders there. These Scythians likely established a military aristocracy over local inhabitants. Culture changed as iron making became more significant and social structures deviated. Now firmly based in the North Caucasus, Scythian leaders would have had ample opportunities to raid and trade. It is likely that these leaders directed raids southward into the lands of the ancient Near East. Warriors would return with tribute and treasure from places like Assyria and Media, and over time, the settled societies here would have sought diplomatic and mercantile relations with the Scythians. There is strong evidence that the Scythians here received horses from the Assyrians, for example. The North Caucasus, though ecologically suitable for nomadic pastoralism, is a pretty small region, and as populations grew over time, competition over resources would have occurred once more. As decades passed, some Scythian warriors would have gained greater awareness of what riches lay to the south. And so, as we've mentioned several times now on this show it's probable that some independently-minded ambitious leaders decided to press further to stake their own fortunes and desires. Some Scythians would move into the South Caucasus, the lands of modern-day Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. Scythian bands likely used mountain passes such as the Daryl Gorge, while many others probably fanned along the eastern end of the mountains, passing through the flat areas around modern-day Durbent. This eastern path is, in fact, the very route that Herodotus mentions in his own work. The presence of more Scythians south of the Caucasus would create a feedback loop, as trade goods and loot flowed northward and incentivized additional migration south. In Azerbaijan, pioneering Scythians resided in the areas around Mingachur, Kurovograd, and Mungunskaya. The Scythians would have found the area to be quite pleasant. The lands of Azerbaijan are filled with steppe and shrublands. Vast swaths of feather grass sweep across the land, creating ample grazing ground. In such times, animals like gazelles would have been abundant and allowed for a variety of socioeconomic activities, such as hunting. The local climate was also conducive for pastoralism, and much of the region has been used to raise animals such as sheep and goats. In later ages, the plains of Azerbaijan would act as an important holding for nomadic empires. Such groups, like the Mongols, could use Azerbaijan as a staging ground for incursions into the wider Middle East. These factors likely played a key role in establishing a major Scythian presence here. Ancient authors like Xenophon will continually make reference to the Scythians here, and like later steppe polities, they would use this area as a base of operations for further activity into the ancient Near East. Some scholars even argue that the Scythians established a kingdom centered in Azerbaijan, a territory known as Sakosena or Scythanoi. More specifically, the scholar Somaz Kashkei, argues that this Scythian kingdom likely encompassed the lands of eastern Georgia and the Mingachar region of Azerbaijan. Supporting such claims, archaeologists have uncovered a number of Scythian artifacts in the region. In the Mingachar area, ancient burials show a distinct split between those pre-existing and those preceding the Scythians. In these Scythian burials, scholars have uncovered horse gear, arrowheads, and pottery. The Kurgan reveals a whole trove of bronze items, including what may be a scabbard. Although the Scythian influence on the South Caucasus is quite clear, we actually have evidence showing that the inverse occurred as well. Scythian warriors are believed to have adopted technologies developed by indigenous Georgian communities. For example, many Scythians would adopt the three-edged bronze socketed arrowhead. Although we know a decent amount about tools and technology, we don't really know much about the political structures that existed in the Caucasus. It is evident from Assyrian sources that the Scythians here will eventually unify into a polity headed by a king, though we can't say for sure if this monarch's authority accounted for all the southern Caucasus or if this represented a single kingdom within a sea of others in the region. Like the Cimmerians, we can't assume that all Scythians banded together into a single central authority. Whatever the case may be, it is clear that from their base in the southern Caucasus, the Scythians would slowly make their way closer to the settled populations of the ancient Near East. Looking at things holistically, we have the arrival of the Cimmerians in around the 8th century BCE, The movement of Scythian bands through the Caucasus throughout the 7th century BCE, and now, by the 6th century BCE, we have Scythians within proximity of the great ancient Near Eastern powers. Thinking back to episode 9, at around this period of time, the Camarons would be one of the first steppe nomads to operate in this region. In 714 BCE, the Khmerians scored a crushing defeat against the Orations, which in turn allowed the Assyrians of Sargon II to strike a near-killing blow. The Cimmerians were then able to position themselves in the highlands between the Assyrians and Orations. The Scythians, through their central position in the Mingachar region, and particularly in the areas near Lake Ermia, would instead face immediate contacts by the Menaeans, the Medes, and again, the Uratians. Here, we can imagine that the Scythians engaged in trade and raiding with their neighbors. Assyria in particular became a key state for the Scythians. In 679 BCE, the Assyrian king Esarhaddon was successful in defeating a Cimmerian raid led by a man named Tushpa. However, it was quite clear to Esarhaddon that Assyria faced many enemies in this time. We've talked about this prayer before, but I think it perfectly encapsulates the geopolitical situation Assyria faced at the time, and therefore demonstrates the political opportunity the Scythians were offered. Quote, o Shamash, great lord, whom I ask with the true grace, answer me. From this day, the third day of this month, E.R., to the eleventh month of Ab of this year, a period covering one hundred days and one hundred nights, in this time will Kashtarti with his soldiers, or the soldiers of the Cimmerians, or the soldiers of the Medes, or the soldiers of the Mani, or any enemy, as many as they are, have success with their plans. Will they, either by overthrow or might, or by contest, battle, and war, Seize the city of Kishasu. The Cambridge Ancient History notes that the Scythians had also joined in anti Assyrian operations. The Scythians, led by a king named Ishpaka, raided Assyria in 676 BCE. This event may be the earliest recorded incident mentioning the Scythians specifically. Here, the Scythians were dealt a devastating blow. As Esarhaddon himself recounts, quote, I smote with the sword the armies of Ishpaka the Scythian. Alliance with the Manaeans did not save him. Unquote. And yet, despite this incident, Esarhaddon understood a key principle one's enemy could one day become one's friend. Beset by the Khmerians, Orations, and Manaeans, Esarhaddon recognized that having an ally a particularly mobile and martially inclined one, could be advantageous. A man named Bartatu, perhaps a son of the deceased Ishpaka, would ascend to the kingship of the Scythians. In an unprecedented move, Bartatu would ask Esarhaddon for a marriage alliance, and in 674 BCE, Esarhaddon agreed. Bartatu was then wed to Esarhaddon's daughter. In one sense, the marriage alliance would provide the Scythians with security on their southern front. The Assyrians were the most dominant power in the area, and they had soundly defeated the Scythians. The alliance would allow the Scythians to engage in other theatres, to raid weaker opponents, without fear of an Assyrian offensive. At the same time, the fact that Bartatu had asked for this marriage alliance implies that the Scythians believed themselves to be a major power, powerful enough to make demands from the preeminent polity in the region. The marriage alliance also meant that Bartatu would take an oath of allegiance, effectively becoming a vassal of the Assyrians. This relationship would prove to be fruitful for both parties, but at the time, we can imagine that both sides viewed one another with suspicion and likely sought each other as tools to be utilized. Esser had evidently felt this way. As recounted in an inscription, Esarhaddon wonders of, quote, whether Bartatu will speak with him true words of peace, unquote. And with that question, Esarhaddon will set into motion a chain of events that would lead to a nearly three decades long period of dominance by the Scythians. However, the road to that period would be long and tumultuous. For now, the Scythians stand firmly behind the Assyrians, and as a united pair, will take battle to the Uratians, the Menaeans, and the Cimmerians. Looking back on today's episode, we explored the movement of Scythian groups across the Caucasus. Independent bands likely moved out of the Pontic region into the North Caucasus, and when resources became scarce, other groups pushed further south. Indigenous Caucasian peoples, such as the Koban culture, were likely subjugated by the Scythians. For a period of time, the Scythians became the dominant power of the Caucasus and established a major base of operations in modern Azerbaijan and western Georgia. In this position, the Scythians began to make overtures into the ancient Near East. We have accounts of raids, but also accounts of diplomacy, and by 674 BCE, the Scythians had made an important move, a marriage alliance with the Assyrians. Will Esarhaddon's fears prove to be nothing, or will the Scythians destroy the Assyrians from the inside? I think for now, I'll leave us with that cliffhanger. Next time, we explore the Scythian presence in the ancient Near East. And now I just wanted to say a few words. I'm really sorry, and I apologize again for not getting this episode out earlier, and I feel really bad for the long gap between episodes. As I mentioned previously, I was at a work conference, I was visiting family, and then I was visiting my partner, and so I was out of my house and away from my research materials for quite a while. I promise that I'm going to make a solid push on getting more episodes out on a regular basis, but that's going to have to be in the fall. I'm going to make episodes in the summer, but with the way my schedule is right now, it will be difficult to have things on a regular cadence. I really do thank you all for your patience, and I promise to continue pushing out episodes when I can, but also at the quality I want. I really can't thank each of you enough. As always, you can reach out to me at my email, gmail.com or on Twitter, at nomadempirespod. I've received a lot of great feedback, comments, and corrections, and it is sincerely all thanks to you. For instance, one quick correction I wanted to make is for last episode, and at some point I talked about Central Asian Scythians interacting with the Persian Empire, and that is true, but the Persian Empire doesn't really coalesce until further into Scythian history. Anyway, finally, be sure to check out the Turkish History Podcast. I've been listening to their work, and it's a great compliment to the subjects we're tackling here. Thank you all again, and I'll see you next time on the dusty sands of the ancient Near East.